Hello and welcome to the Employment Book Podcast. I'm Brian Powers, Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. I'm joined again by my colleagues, Emily Riera and Essie Maravara. We also have a very special guest today, Samantha Maguana from Shine Lawyers. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to be talking about sexual harassment at work. Now, we're not going to be talking about any gory details or any sexualized content, but nevertheless, this can be a really tricky and upsetting thing for people to listen to sometimes. And if you feel you're in that category, then this might be a good one to miss and we'll catch up with you on the next podcast. Now, our normal approach to these podcasts is really to provide advice to employers and and, and HR people and and managers, etc., on on complex legal issues and try and help demystify the issues and and offer some guidance on how to mitigate some of the legal risks and what are some practical things they can do to prevent them from arising in the workplace. One of the reasons we wanted Sam to come on the podcast is she's you know, a recognised expert in this field, special counsel at Shine Lawyers and employment lawyer. You lead the senior executive and partnership practice. Highly recommended to any senior executives looking for any sort of advice on employment law, and we refer to Sam and her team quite a bit. The reason she's such a great addition to the pod is that I think you're one of the genuine experts working in Sydney in, in workplace discrimination. Samantha and her team have a high proportion of sexual harassment cases, as well as disability and race discrimination. Only last year, her team achieved a historic success with a landmark sexual harassment appeal decision in Queensland, which we've actually spoken about a couple of times on the podcast, and we didn't realise that was your case until (laughs) quite recently, so well done. And that that had the effect, really, of not just getting justice for that client, but fundamentally changing Queensland precedent in terms of what awards can be awarded. 20-year legal career. Prior to Shine Lawyers in Australia, you were a partner in leading firms in London advising individual senior executives predominantly in the legal and financial services sector, and your experience included working on some of the highest profile discrimination and whistleblowing cases. And you also appear as a broadcast media commentator on the issues as well. Now, it's funny, when I was Googling you, I'm sorry, last night, just to get some background on your career, which I knew a lot about already, but I got some background. I actually found a clip from a few years ago of you on Channel 4 News talking about this. About non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, which was really interesting. You're seeing some different haircuts. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, that's big. But if you thought if you thought you made it Channel 4 News, you've really made it now. <laughs> this podcast, this is the Fantastic. big time. <laughs> Congrats on an amazing career and thanks so much for joining us. You're the first employment lawyer to join us on the podcast, so we're very honoured, a little bit intimidated. I'm very so. honoured by the invitation. <laughs> and, it, and it's great because your practice has an employee focus. I mean, obviously, we primarily advise small to medium enterprises, and I think it's great to have this conversation because I think, unlike so many areas of employment law, this is an area where everyone can agree. Um, It's in everybody's interests that sexual harassment doesn't happen. We really value your perspectives, and I wanted to start, and this is what, you know, when we talked about this offline, I wanted to start with the Me Too movement. I'd really like what your perspective as an employment lawyer has been, both in the UK and now here on, on Me Too, and has it changed workplaces? Um, yeah, I'm really happy to talk about it. And, and you're right, I have worked in this area for, for quite a long time. The majority of my cases in sex discrimination prior to Me Too were about other aspects of sex discrimination. I, I mean, I had done sexual harassment work from, yeah. I think, 
as early as about 2002 or 2003. Yeah. You mean more like unfavourable treatment? Much more. Yeah, um, because, in fact, the reasons why people came to see a lawyer were be- was because something career-limiting had happened. Right. So dismissals, selection for redundancy, a lot of it was around um, ki- careers getting parked off the rails after maternity leave. And so... And there was some equal pay, gender equity stuff, where it was significant in terms of financial outcomes. Um, But it was quite rare for people to contact us about sexual harassment unless it was part of one of these more financially um, significant cases. Um, And in those cases, quite often, we then found out when we explored the background that there had been sexual harassment. So... Um, we ended up pleading sexual harassment in a lot of cases, but it wasn't what had prompted the person to come to us. Got you. Yeah. So really, in the, in the old days, if you like, it was just you had to perceive some sort of significant financial loss before you went to go and see a lawyer. That and was what normally prompted the call. Yeah. Um, at least in my experience. Yeah, yeah, sure. I uh, started out thinking that if I went into discrimination law, I would be... I would help to change the world. I was yeah. an idealist. And um, I got a bit of a shock a decade down the road when a, a new piece of research came out by Equality and Human Rights Commission, which basically to me read like the same press release from a decade mm. earlier. And I thought I hadn't really achieved very much um, because I had actually spent plenty of the last 10 years signing off settlement agreements um, for pretty much the same conduct in the same employers or same type of employers but getting individually people quite good settlements but the big picture hadn't changed at all and that was a bit demoralizing actually yeah yeah Um, a little bit saddening yeah thinking you know what had originally motivated me and and sure it is very motivating to get someone individually the right outcome for them to do it without needing to go to court to know that you got a good deal from the other side but taking a step back I did sort of question a little bit yeah did you feel like part of the problem almost yeah Yeah. I I did and the reality is I felt complicit yeah which was not a nice feeling and um, it just coincided with taking a period of time off work I went traveling (laughs) and interestingly just before I came back to the UK the Weinstein story had broken. Right. <clears throat> and within, you know, the space of a week, I think then it was Kevin Spacey. And, yep. well, we all know what happened. It just yep. took off. I think the first time I saw that tweet was a friend saying, is there any woman who hasn't experienced sexual harassment? And then it was hashtag me too. Yeah. I remember just going on my timeline, whatever day it was, when suddenly seeing mm. all of these me too's. It was a huge, like a huge internet thing. That was almost the birth of the hashtag in mainstream to me I don't know. anyway <laughs> well, and there were different iterations of it in different yeah. languages as well yeah, they right, had, um, were do you know what the one it was in France it was something about a pig wasn't it yes I can't remember right. but yeah there were different versions of a sort of sexist statement or a yeah. challenge to it in different yeah um, it wasn't always me too it wasn't, but always it, was something. it wasn't English but it was a global phenomenon yeah wow and in a way it became almost a catch-all term for the experience of sexual harassment in the workplace or sexual right. assault outside the workplace and a movement of challenging it. 
which yeah. hadn't happened before. And voila, it's trans- like in French, it was balanced on port, which will be like throw your pig away, like throw your pig away. Throw yeah. away the pig. Yeah. Ah, like pig like, yeah. That's yeah. very French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like a, a machiso pig. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Chauvinistic pig. It's not that uncommon yeah. an yeah. expression. No. Mm. Squ- well, squeal on your pig. <laughs> squeal on your pig. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Is that yeah. <laughs> so squeal on well, your pig. It's quite yeah. yeah. like an assumption everyone's got one. Yeah, not, yes. so, not throw away, but more yeah. like tell on your pig. Tell, yeah, tell, tell, yeah. yes. tell on your pig. Yeah, yeah oh, that's brilliant. So, and, and ha- so do you think it's changed workplaces well, or? So, so what happened coming back to work, that yeah. had just happened and it felt like a lot was happening very fast. I think my first week back to work, I got a call from the Financial Times asking to talk. Almost every day there were requests for interviews about different aspects. And that, that day, the question was about technology and social media and whether it, whether it was enabled, it enabled sexual harassment or not. And what cases might have been about that. And I was on my way to lunch uh, with a friend in the city to catch up. And he was an employment lawyer at one of the big banks. And I said, oh, can you help me with (laughs) with this? And he said, Sam, I've got to tell you, everything has changed. And he was very oblique because he obviously couldn't really tell me Mm. what was going on. But he said, whereas before, nothing really happened. Now, we've got the authority to fire them. And it's happening. Ah. Right. So it was it was like a sort of almost moment of high drama then. And it was interesting because in the UK at that time, so it started Hollywood, yeah. and then it went massively through uh, financial services, legal, yeah. and politics. So I'd say the big change wasn't suddenly sexual harassment started happening. But suddenly it was in everyone's face yeah. and actions were being taken about it yeah. in some cases and people started to feel that they could report it. What hadn't happened before started to happen, which was that people were contacting me about sexual harassment. Right. Not because they'd been sacked. Yeah. Right, yeah, whereas it used to be a sort of like a secondary claim to discrimination or termination or that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Fascinating. And obviously though it, it hasn't gone away overnight. No, but then I came here <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. what shocked me was that what I'd just seen in London hadn't happened here. Yeah, right. Um I came around the stage that um, the Jeffrey Rush decision. <laughs> well, I mean not in I wouldn't say in every every respect, but I was really shocked, um, particularly about how it didn't seem to have hit the legal profession. Um, And um, in the wake of the Geoffrey Rush decision, there was a lot of nervousness about raising concerns of sexual harassment, actually, rather than um, sort of people openly coming forward about it. Um, Because in in that case, the 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 woman involved hadn't even complained um but she had been named as a witness and and then had her reputation right. torn apart right. so yeah it was it was very different and i got a bit disappointed actually yeah. after that for a bit but then for completely different reasons it all happened here 
Yeah. So there was the High Court with former Justice yeah. Dyson Hayden. There was AMP. Yeah. Um, then, of course, Federal Parliament, Grace yeah. Tame, Brittany Higgins. Yeah. And the same momentum that I'd seen in the UK yeah. happened here in the same institutions. Legal, financial, yeah. politics, but so for completely different reasons. So that's happened really in the last couple of years. Is yeah. Yeah. happened back in the Weinstein era in, in London. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Only in 2021 in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Really last year. It was the, yeah, it was the end of 2020 when um, it all started here. Yeah. Well, certainly, you know, there's a problem with the legal <coughs> profession if one of the High Court judges is doing something wrong. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> the fish rots from the head, doesn't it? Our listeners love me reading legislation to them. It's their favourite thing. <laughs> I'm guilty of that one too. <laughs> yeah, like the sexual harassment for the purposes of the Sex Discrimination Act uh, means someone either making an unwelcome sexual advance or unre- unwelcome request for sexual favours or engages in other unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature in relation to the person harassed in circumstances where a reasonable person having regard to the circumstances, would have anticipated the possibility that the person harassed would have been offended, humiliated, or intimidated. And I think there's a really important distinction because obviously, yes, the unwelcome sexual advances and the horrible things that you hear about in some of those high-level cases, I think the community, the prevailing community standard is, oh, of course, that's unacceptable. But that second limb that engages in other unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature, that's the one that in... in really features in, for instance, Richardson and Oracle in a lot of cases that over a repeated period of time can be really terrible. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no requirement in the legislation for it to be repeated. Well, well no, that's right. So, yeah. so yeah, I think the legislation is, provided it's unwelcome yeah. and it's conduct of a sexual nature, that's enough yeah. if a reasonable person would also anticipate yeah. that you'd be offended in that situation. And so... It can be a one-off act. Yeah. It can be a one-off act that's not um, something violent. Yeah. Um, if it's an unwelcome sexual conduct. No. But, but <laughs> yeah, no, of course, and I wasn't suggesting it needed to be repeated, but what I, what I was perhaps suggesting is that where there is conduct of which could otherwise on its own be seen as relatively minor, an employer observing the workforce, put it this way, isn't always going to necessarily see things as sexual conduct that can be deeply offensive, um, and particularly where they're where they're repeated. Mm. But what I mean, I guess well, that's that was, that's sorry. one of the challenges often actually improving the sexual harassment because it it tends to be conduct between two people when other people aren't around. Yeah. So there's a question of it being one person's word against another's because you know these are cases that are always denied. Yeah. Um, and actually. They are cases where the conduct is opportunistic. It's, it's taken at a time when no one else is around. Equally, a common feature of these cases is the power dynamic and the power imbalance mm. between the victim and the perpetrator. And that would be one of the features that makes it very difficult to do anything about it when the victim's experiencing it, yeah. if, if this is their boss. Um, and... A working relationship is a relationship. You've got no choice about going into work or yeah. dealing with that person, and you need to make it go well. Yeah. Um, so all of those features built together lock someone into a situation against their will where they're having to put up with. Yeah, but I suppose, too, that also is, is, is the feature of it that makes the reasonable person likely to consider that it's going to offend or humiliate. You know, when it's your boss, mm. 
I heard you on 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 your podcast about the restitution podcast, which I recommend. We'll try and post a link to that, which talks in more detail about your case. And you were saying sexual harassment is normally an abuse of power. Yes, I, yeah. I, I think it is a tool of an abuse of power. There's always a power dynamic of some sort. It, yeah. It's not always the boss, yeah. but it's quite often a senior person. Yeah. Um, there can be an age factor. There yeah. can be other vulnerabilities. That That definition that you were reading talked about circumstances in which a reasonable person would anticipate the possibility of this. Uh, it's quite a mouthful, the legislation, is, isn't it? It is, but it's interesting because yeah. it refers to the circumstance, and the circumstances are stated to include particular features of the relationship. So things like age can be a part of that. Things like uh, national or ethnic origin can be a part of that as well, which can have an influence on the on the power dynamic. And specifically, it talks about the relationship between the person harassed and the person who made the advance or request or engaged in the conduct. And so that that basically demonstrates that the, the power dynamic between the individuals involved is one of the relevant factors for considering whether it's um, against the law or yeah, not. Yeah. That power dynamic, it's interesting... Um, a, a huge piece of research was done by the Australian Human Rights Commission here, Kate Jenkins' yeah. um, Respect at Work report, and that looked at some of the particular risk factors for sexual harassment, and that included hierarchical environments. Ah, so right. that question of abuse of power is very much part of that. There were some other risk factors in that as well, looking at male-dominated environments and factors like alcohol in the workplace and and certainly in a lot that I've seen things like um, overnight visits or networking yes that was one of the features in Kate Jenkins workplace settings she talked about workplace settings that involve a high level of contact with third parties including customers and clients networking entertaining that that type of environment so all of these are factors that contribute to it being a high-risk environment. And we talked about legal. Um, But a lot of those factors feature in law firms. Hierarchical environments that involve contact with third parties, clients, barristers, social networks. How do you have time in the legal industry? (laughs) Are we too busy to be messing around with stuff like that? It's funny. I'm too busy professionally harassing you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the deed? <laughs> How much longer? <laughs> I guess the issue of vicarious liability is is really important. The Sex Discrimination Act has, has a sort of a statutory version of vicarious liability. So basically, the, the conduct of your worker, the employer is going to be liable. There's a carve out where basically, if they can prove they did everything reasonable to prevent the harassment and I won't get the legislation and read it word for word but that's the, the basically the rub of it isn't it I mean what's what's reasonable well it, it talks about all reasonable steps were taken to prevent all reasonable steps um, yeah. the discrimination from occurring and I suppose I should say I have never known that to succeed in a case <laughs> at the outset so just in the sense that um, it's an effective defense yeah. certainly not in my experience yeah but that doesn't mean that it couldn't be it just means that in every case I've been involved in, the it employer hasn't. hasn't really had a lot of confidence but that they've taken all reasonable steps to prevent yeah. the discrimination, to really fight it on that basis. But, but I mean, I think there's, you know, and this might be a naive 
opinion, but I, I think in many ways, if you take all reasonable steps to prevent it, you it will prevent it. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, yeah. uh, it's it's one of those things where you, and this is where it's going. We're going to talk about the sort of the practical perspective of it now, but certainly I think if you go through everything that you should go through, and as I said at the very beginning, it's in everybody's interests for this to not happen. Yeah, but a lot of what we see now that goes towards um, prevention of sexual harassment in the workplace is maybe an induction um, online test that you go through and say, um, yes, that's bad conduct, and tick it, and that's the end of it. Now, that's not going to help if an employer is facing a a sexual harassment case. I have seen uh, a lot of employers send the materials that were part of their training or evidence that people attended training and an attendance sheet. And I have seen some really good slides, actually really impressive slides that I thought, oh, I should do something like that. Um, But when we've asked our clients about their experience with that training, they don't remember it happening. Um, They don't know that anyone else has seen it, they ask other colleagues at the workplace. So just having a great PowerPoint presentation or um, an online training module is not going to operate to prevent it happening in the workplace. And almost treating it in that way could perhaps lull an employer into a false sense of security that they've they've dealt with that. Because this isn't about set and forget type training. This is about really understanding what staff know and think about conduct in the workplace testing it culture i think there's a there's an expression that culture is what happens when no one's watching yeah Mm. yeah so what what are the conversations that happen in the workplace that influence culturally how people behave with each other what happens if someone formally complains about treatment in the workplace and this is going to be influenced by complaints about other things like bullying as well if in a workplace people feel there's no point raising a complaint because nothing ever gets done about it then that's going to go towards whether all reasonable steps have been taken or not it's important that people believe that there's a purpose to raising a complaint will it be investigated will repercussions happen that could mean exiting people visibly. That could mean communications to the workforce. Now, I've never seen an employer defend a case by saying that they've done these things. Yeah, okay. It's always about the PowerPoint slides. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes they're not, not, not particularly effective. I, might, I remember Richard and Oracle, that was basically the defence of Oracle. And I think it's important also for those sort of baffled by this line of question, it's... From a practical perspective, if you do have an employee that's been harassed by a co-worker, nine times out of ten, the co-worker's not got any money to pay. So purely from a from a you know litigation strategy perspective, the employer is going to be on the hook as second respondent from day one. Absolutely. And yeah. so when I'm considering which cases we're taking on, we're looking at where are the assets and do they have means? Yeah. You know, is the defendant going to be viable? And we're looking at the employer. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's that's why the importance, and and that's why you know to say just a couple of PowerPoint slides is not enough. But as as you're saying, it it's not. Yeah, all reasonable steps is not a set and forget induction. Although it's not a reason not to do an induction if you're not doing it. You know, but it just needs to be part of the overall response. Yeah. Well, in in the wake of all of that stuff happening in the legal sector yeah. in London, there are a lot of discussions in law firms about 
trying different techniques and how to challenge behavior. Uh, there was a lot of research about the bystander effect. So what happens yeah. if, if something happens and no one does anything, that's actually worse than no one witnessing it yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of Absolutely. Um, enabling the conduct to continue and pulling everyone into a sort of secrecy about it. Because once it's happened once and you didn't speak up, what happens the next time? It's, it's quite pernicious in, yeah. in that respect. And um, one law firm got kind of called out in the legal media and a lot of people were laughing at it because the idea um, their staff came up with was um, to say it's not okay. And because what they wanted to do was almost have an expression that everyone knew what it meant if it was said and anyone could say it um, regardless of how junior or senior they were. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily have to confront someone yeah. very... Just a sort of code word. Like kind of. Yeah. And, and they come up with it, it's not okay. Yeah. Um, which just was met by absolute derision from a lot of the legal profession as sort of laughing at the how ineffectual this was. But I actually thought it was quite reasonable. Yeah. I was about to say, I think it actually sounds like something yeah. that... That's it's easy to implement. People would pick it up. It's yeah, and it's, it means that hasn't gone unchecked. Yeah, yeah. It's not overly dramatic either. It's no. just kind of it's low key. Yeah. It's but it's but if everyone and it's on the one same of those page, things about, um, and and this I think is probably relevant for employers to hear. If you're thinking about things that could change culture or communicate culture or somehow enable people to be a part of that, because it's a horrible experience as well to see something happening and feel that you don't have the power to say something about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that's one idea. <laughs> Fantastic. That's brilliant. It leads me to my next question, because you talked, you mentioned about exiting people in response. And obviously, you know, unfair dismissal is a big part of our practice, you know, respondent unfair dismissal. And we've seen both, you know, in terms of the work that we do, but also there was a point on, on the podcast, we talk about sort of news stories and employment law every week was sexual harassment it was just kind of quite mm. weary like there was just every week mm-hmm. there was a case but they were almost always in that unfair dismissal context this is my question for you is is that a sign that sexual harassment is a problem or is it a sign that things are being done now by employers about it I, I think it's the latter you do because actually one of the challenges before was that cases were going to the fair work commission where people were getting reinstated because there'd been a procedurally unfair aspect but the yeah. the without considering the severity of the conduct. And so one of the changes, one of the respect at work reforms was to change the definition of serious misconduct in the Fair Work Act to specifically include sexual harassment. harassment So that then- Which happened, yeah. Yeah, so that then the procedural fairness argument isn't such a big deal. And you're looking at the significance of the conduct. And I think that was, I I mean, that should have been the case yeah. before. And I think it was almost surprising that it wasn't, wasn't. the case. Yeah. But that led to those anomalies in cases. And then I think um, when employers and actually when their representatives had been burned by that experience, there was a hesitancy about disciplining and yeah. exiting yeah. Um, people in that situation, which has gone. Yeah. yeah. You had another theory as well. I did. I was joking that it's uh, because the people who do the harassing are so unwilling to accept that they did any wrongdoing that warranted dismissal that they bring the claims. Oh, yeah. <laughs> more claims. Just, yeah. Well, yeah, no, I think there is some of that. And I should probably also say that I have 
work for employers yeah, in, yeah. in sexual harassment cases. Yeah. And actually, because a lot of my work was with individuals, a lot of the time I was representing the person accused. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Sometimes some very senior people yeah. accused. So, you know, it is obviously incredibly important for the procedures to be fair and for everyone to be heard and and for their case to be listened to this is not a knee-jerk decision Mm. one of the ones that we talked about in the podcast and it made me think of that when you said that they're so brazen they actually just defend the case there was the the bottle shop yeah did you hear there was an unfair dismissal a couple of months ago about a bottle shop attendant that was saying awful things to a customer and got sacked and he actually led evidence in his own defense from people that were saying oh he's really funny He's a really funny guy. They're all just jokes and he's just really funny. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I hear that a lot. Um, I hear the the defence being it was banter or it was just a joke. You know, a good proportion of the time. And, you know, Brian, you read out that definition, section 28A. There is no mention of what was the intention of the perpetrator yeah, in yeah. that. Yeah. So the fact that people say, oh, that wasn't what I meant, she yeah. took it the wrong way, is completely irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. That is not part of the test. Yeah. It's the conduct. Whether it's a the conduct person. and whether a reasonable person yeah. would. Is sexual harassment only or predominantly committed by cisgendered straight men against women? Two different answers to that question. Not only, <laughs> but predominantly. <laughs> yes. Um, so... You know, we, we've got cases at the moment that are male victims of sexual yep. harassment. That's not unusual, but it is not the proportion. Yeah. Um, I can't give you a mathematical percentage, no, no. but just as a sort of yeah. anecdotal view of my caseload, over 90% have been women, yep. um, but there have been male victims as well. There have also been um, cases involving people's sexuality. I've got one of those at the moment, and actually there is quite often a streak of where there is homophobic bullying, there's Mm. sexual harassment as well. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know the funny story was, embarrassing story for me, but um, I did some training with a client and we always do scenario-based training. So um, the scenario, and I think you might have, Essie might have written it with me. (laughs) (laughs) So... We did this scenario. I love it. I, I, my, I secretly want to be a, a creative writer. <laughs> <not more. laughs> we we wrote this scenario. It was really good about a cruise ship, wasn't it? Yeah. It was oh, a guy yes. and a girl on a cruise ship, and which is like high risk hospitality, alcohol, Living overnight stay, yeah. all those things we were talking about. And and the situation slowly progresses, and the whole idea of the scenario is talk about when this is unlawful. Mm-hmm. Um, and workshop it together. So I was going around the room talking to people and I came up with a group and this guy said to me, oh, this is very heteronormative. I was like, oh, and I was devastated. And I thought, well, I went away and thought, yes, actually it is. And maybe I'm out of touch with the modern world and I need to rethink the training and the rest of it. And then when I thought about it, I thought, well, no, actually, I think it is heteronormative because I think society has normalised men harassing heterosexual men harassing women. That's part of the reasons why we need these provisions the way they are. And so I think sometimes it's actually just more visible 
more. You think, it's, you think so? it, it might stand out more while people well, would let up? I think perhaps, the, per- so. perhaps the community say. standards would, would, would appreciate that as, as I, I you think don't. there's some environments where homophobic bullying is seen as normal. Really? And, okay. Yeah, particularly like the use of the word gay yeah. as a pejorative term yeah, for anything. Yeah. And I, I've certainly seen this in, in cases in the way that there might be blatant sexual harassment towards a woman yeah. and expecting to take it as a joke. I've I've seen that very much where the victim is a man and the yeah, jokes wow. involve sexuality as well. Yeah, I just haven't seen as many victims that are male yeah. as yeah, yeah, yeah. are female. Exactly. But the okay. conduct is very similar when it happens. Yeah, right. There's, there's actually quite a few that we've been dealing with recently that involve um, physical touching. Um, of of male staff members whether they are straight or gay it it hasn't impacted physical sexual harassment yeah and perpetrated by men or by women um mainly by men yeah not exclusively but mainly and what about the other way around is there any prevalence is there any uh, are there cases of sort of in that heterosexual context where women are harassing men yes yeah that happens I've got one at the moment and so that power dynamic is a feature of it I don't think I've ever seen female harasser of a man where there hasn't been a difference in hierarchy because you sort of think about it now and it's like it's one of those things for a group of women to comment on a guy's like physique is you know it's almost like you could see that as now almost passing master in a way that guys talking about a a woman's body wouldn't I've spoken to my guy friends about that and how uncomfortable they are but they feel like they can't speak out about it that they yeah. are and it's and interestingly enough it's in marketing kind of agencies where there's this culture of women and, and gay men coming together to you know to talk quite openly about I don't know other tinder dates or just celebrities things yeah. like that and compare with various people and so it's interesting you mentioned that sector because in the Respect at Work inquiry, the top sector of all industries for prevalence of sexual harassment was information, media and telecoms. I'm and not then surprised arts at all. and recreation. Yeah. Now, Essie and I have been arguing about the NDAs for ages. We have not been arguing. So, you... <laughs> <laughs> so ask Sam what she thinks about that. And I just thought it was funny that that's what you were talking about five years ago on Channel 4. In a, in a, I believe in a different, con- slightly different context. It so. was in relation to, so this has come up in the last two podcasts, up, funnily enough, oh, really? that we've been yeah. doing. Um, yeah, no, so it's it's to do with the Victoria's post changes after the task force report and this idea that we might, that they might introduce something similar to the Irish bill in relation to NDAs. And I was wondering what your thoughts on, have you had a look at the Irish bill or, and, and what they're proposing? I, have or what? I haven't looked at the Irish bill, so I won't be able to talk about that at all. But you're right that they did reference it. They also referenced what had happened in the UK and the US. And I was quite surprised to hear the reference to the UK because, you know, that came up while I was there. And yeah. I was part of a committee that was advising the, the Law Society on guidance, the legal profession, and, and it was the beginnings of talking to a committee in the UK Parliament who then went on and did a piece about it. And really nothing concrete has come out of the UK. Nothing much concrete has come out of the UK. So presumably then Ireland has gone further. So yeah, so the Irish (coughs) bill, which is, you know, still in its early stages, but that's proposing that essentially NDAs can only be entered into if the employee expressly asks for it. 
So if they've made an allegation or, or they, you know, they've been harassed and if they ask for an NDA, then in those circumstances, the employer can enter into it. If they enter into it, then there's also additional sort of caveats on what can be included. And if it's not within that, then it's deemed void. And that includes that they've been offered independent legal advice at the expense of the employer. Mm -hmm. There have been no undue attempts to influence the employee in respect of the decision about the NDA. And that the agreement doesn't adversely affect the future health or safety of a third party or the public interest which I would imagine is mm-hmm. other employees or future mm-hmm. employees. And then the agreement includes an opportunity for the employee to decide to waive their own confidentiality in the future and that it's only for a set period of time. So it's gonna there's an expiry on how long that NDA, NDA is in force. That's really well put together and deals with a lot of the issues around yeah. it. In 2018 in the UK, the, the Equality and Human Rights Commission there came out with proposals to government, I think it's called turning the tables, and it was looking at this question of the use of NDAs and whether the use could be changed, because obviously this is a complicated question. Non-disclosure agreements are used across industries for very proper reasons, and you know, we work in the legal profession. Keeping things confidential is part of our professional duties, so it's not that every confidentiality agreement is going to be a bad thing, but when it comes to people suffering from sexual harassment and um, particularly where there's predatory patterns and they are covered up by non-disclosure agreements which was the case with the Weinstein non-disclosure agreements there are a number of concerns about that number one it looks like covering up crime um, or stopping people from going to report it to speak to a regulator certainly the public policy reason I mean it was only uh, after the awful Jimmy Savile cases. It was because that Uh, became publicised. Then people started to come forward after... But it had been happening for decades. Yeah. And so, yes, same with Weinstein. After people spoke up, then others came forward. So all all of those are really strong reasons. Apart from anything else, confidentiality clauses can cause further harm for the victims after they've signed them and then they feel that they can't speak about it publicly and we've had those movements here now in Australia let her speak and the Grace Tame story there is a real concern that having a sort of legal um, ability to maintain secrecy perpetuates or enables this conduct particularly if someone is powerful and can pay their lawyers and pay people off absolutely um, so structurally, it doesn't solve this problem. Yeah. Um, and there's always that expression, sunlight's the best disinfectant, isn't it? That, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, you bring things out to the open yeah. and then yeah. they can get solved. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that's where it does start to get complicated when thinking about the difference between the big picture and the individual level. And that's mm. always been my point. Mm. And that's, I don't know if this is where you're going. But like the concern for me is that can that be an impediment to actually getting an outcome? Potentially, yes. Yeah. And also, the victim may care deeply about confidentiality themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Different people want different things in every yeah. case. Different victims might have completely different views, prioritising being able to speak about it to the world over above other factors and other individuals might want completely the opposite in that situation yeah hate that it ever happened wish that it could be taken away and want nothing more than to have 
the means to carry on their life, but but it never ever gets referred to again. And both of those views are completely legitimate. But the difficulty is that a decision can be taken at a time and a document signed and entered into, and that decision could change at a later date after different experiences. So there is that factor. I started to see when I was doing all that Me Too work in London and there was reporting about what was happening in different law firms in particular. It was the first time I'd seen this and now I've seen it quite a lot since, including here, most recently with the former Justice Dyson Hayden cases. But where the announcement was going out from the law firm Naming the partner, um, describing the exit and the reason for it, but not naming the victims. And the part that I'd never seen before, expressly saying that they hadn't been asked to sign NDAs. I'd never seen that before. And now you do see it Mm. in the context of, of sexual harassment. It doesn't mean that the victims want to be named or that it's for the employer to name them, but it does show that there has been some shift in thinking about this. It was really interesting to hear those mechanisms in the Irish legislation because at at around that time in the UK there was a paper talking about what what could be done Mm. and this idea, are you taking something away from the victim that might otherwise be helpful for them to get to a resolution? So the idea being that confidentiality should only go in if it's the victim's request had been proposed then Um, I'd be very interested to see how it's working out in practice because where it got to uh, around the time I was leaving the UK was actually a leading feminist association actually came out and said we we're not in favor of it oh really um it hadn't been proposed to have that mechanism that shifting mechanism at that stage but the the topic being discussed was a ban on NDAs yeah because I think I might be wrong that that was what was happening in California and they were looking at it in New York maybe and the rationale being it goes back to this question of the abuse of power and the hierarchical structure because if that is what's underlying this the one piece of leverage that the individual victim has is whether they go public with it or not and actually the bigger the power imbalance the more senior the more well-known the more public figure that's the one thing that tips yeah. the balance. And you might be taking that. You might be taking that away yeah. from yeah. yeah. And then there might be no incentive to yeah. do a, a, a financial settlement with yeah. them to pay for the therapy that they've had and will continue yeah. to need mm. or to the other destruction to their and it's lives. It's funny, and if the employer <clears throat> is footing the bill, often they'll be thinking from a reputational perspective. But as you say, that's a culture shift because what you're just describing with the law firm, where you can actually say, let's get ahead of this and say, yes. It happened and there's no NDAs and this person's left. Maybe that's better reputationally than just (laughs) burying it all together. Is it interesting in in terms of personal outcomes, what you said on on your other podcast about your case too, is that, uh, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you, but you were talking about the fact that so many of these cases are wrapped up behind closed doors, Mm -hmm. which we all know as employment lawyers is often the best way, almost always the best way. But if you've got your damages set, at this ridiculously low amount, then we're all looking at that in terms of the negotiation. So a big case like that just opens the door for everyone. It does, but I think it's something that probably we all say that a, a case that goes all the way to trial is a case that, you know, the lawyers have failed at, at settling that. Yeah. Because you ought to be able to yeah. wrap it up sooner. You ought to be able to get the same result that you would have got at trial 
at an earlier stage uh, without spending too much money on the lawyers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I think we've solved it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm afraid to say that was when, when you were asking, has Me Too changed things? Yeah. I don't think it has. Yeah. And I think that we have had this excitement and a high profile, and you're right, in the news every day, and then it goes away and the conduct continues. Yeah. I, I don't think that the conduct has changed. And unfortunately, some of the cases we're dealing with now are horrendous. There's, there's quite a few of the cases we're working on now that involve rape and sexual assault. And these yeah, are not long-distant events. These are current. And they're across all sectors. So I don't think we've solved it at all. Sorry, Brian. Well, I think we've run out of time to do our Twitter game. Mm. You're going to the hook? Is yeah. that okay? Everyone might be persuaded. <laughs> so thanks, everyone. If you've enjoyed the podcast, we've had... Samantha Maguana from Shine Lawyers, who leads the National Employment and Discrimination Law Practice. If anyone's interested in getting in touch with her, her team only acts for individuals and organisations that represent them. A plaintiff side practice, they understand the particular dilemmas and tensions faced when challenging their employers and are familiar with supporting individuals through the process. While much of their work is assisting where employees have been dismissed, commonly they also insist with workplace disputes, disciplinaries, wage claims, they advise on new contracts, exit arrangements, pay and flexible working negotiations. So if you're an employee out there, go see Sam. If you're an employer, come and see us. And that means Sam and us can have a, a good old fight in the commission or something. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening and we'll, um, we'll talk to you again soon.